We're going to continue our look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to do that this week and next, and then that will be the, uh, the end of this series. And I do want to thank many of you who have either told me uh, personally or sent me an email or text saying that uh, this has been very helpful to you. And I appreciate that. I need to know if it's helpful or not. If it's not helpful, just don't say anything. Uh, but if it is, if it is, uh, please let us know. So if you have your scriptures with you, look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. This is the word of the Lord. When uh, Madi V and I uh, first started talking about uh, going into the ministry, I was already uh, a business person. I owned a business for 20 years here in El Paso, and, and uh, I was about 40 years old, and I don't know, I can't really explain, I don't have time to really go into it, but God put in my heart that I should uh, sell my business and uh, you know, go, go into some kind of ministry. We really didn't know what we were doing, we were completely ignorant, uh, and didn't really see the path ahead of us. And we had a lot of people that were encouraging us. There were folks that encouraged us, and there were a few that discouraged us. I had a good friend of mine who was a pastor, uh, who had been, been down the road uh, of pastoral ministry, and he told me, don't do it, Chuck. You're going to be miserable. Uh, it's a hard road. There's going to be a lot of challenges. The, the, the life that you've been living is not going to be anything like the life you're going to live then. Don't do it. But other people cheered me along, oh sure, go do it, go do it. One of my very best friends, somebody I trusted implicitly, was one of those who was cheering me on. Chuck, you need to do this, you know, God's called you, there's this strong call on your life, and you know, and we love to hear that, don't we? We like to, you know, boost up our ego like God is up there in heaven just holding his breath, oh, I hope Chuck will do it, the whole world will fall apart if he doesn't do it, and uh, which is not the case, but... Uh, but anyway, we did it, and we sold stuff, and we moved to Florida and went into ministry, and it was everything the one promised. <laughs> it was very difficult uh, and very hard, and uh, my other friend that told me, you need to do this, this is good for you, don't worry, everything's going to be fine, uh, called me one day, and he says, gosh, Chuck, you know, things are pretty tough, aren't they? I said, yeah, thanks a lot, and uh, he said, well, if you knew that they were going to be this hard, would you have done it? And I said, no way. I would not have any, nobody could have, could have convinced me to do this if I had known. Uh, and he was a little bit disappointed. He wanted me to, to give him the Christian cliche, oh yes, I'm going to suffer for Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but I told him honestly, I mean, he's my friend, I was honest. I said, you know, I wouldn't have done it. I would have chickened out if I had known the path ahead. And I certainly would have. But in the years since, it's not that things have gotten easier or better. They're still hard. You know, and my, my lot as a pastor is not any harder than what you go through in your everyday life, in your careers and in your businesses or work 
uh, or home life, it's the same. We all have those challenges. And if we knew the path ahead of us, if we knew what was ahead, we would not get out of bed in the morning. I mean, there's enough out there to scare you to death, yes? I mean, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. But imagine this. If you were able to cast your eyes and your vision beyond this life into the eternal realm and you had a picture of what was to come there. Now that changes everything. Yes? Would you agree? That changes things. If you could see beyond just the few steps ahead or the few years ahead, the the, the heartbreaks, the pain, the fear, the doubt, the lack, the persecution. If you were able to look beyond that and see the complete path and the end of the rainbow, then many of us would do it. We would go ahead and enter that path. And that's what this passage is about. The Apostle Paul gives us this early creed. It's a confession. In fact, a lot of scholars think that the Apostles' Creed was ordered and kind of formed around this early creed. Manifest in the flesh, vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. There's a a path there that Jesus entered into. And we think in our minds that Jesus knew everything and that He had the whole picture and He knew all about it. And, and He did, but at the same time, His understanding was limited much in the same way ours is because He was a human being. He was a person. He was a man like you and I. We seem to think Jesus is Superman, that He knows everything, that He can leap tall buildings at a single bound, uh, that His teeth never got tooth decay, that He never had a splinter, uh, that he never, His face never broke out, uh, that everything was all perfect. We mythologize Jesus. We make Him into a cartoon character. But Jesus was a man like you and I. He had dirt under His fingernails. He knew what it was to feel pain. He knew what it was to wake up in the morning and be sick with a cold and a fever. He knew what it was to go to bed at night with no food. He knew, I guarantee you, He knew the inside of a pawnbroker. He knew what it was like to go into a pawnbroker shop with nothing, hoping you could get a few dollars for another day. He was a human being like you and I. And He had to tread That path, the path that many of you are on, the path that we all are on in one way or another. And that's what we've been talking about over these weeks. Last week we talked about the conviction of faith, the difference between faith and credulity. And biblical faith always has an object. It always has something that gives your faith its strength and its power. If you believe in your faith, if you have credulity, what we call credulity, faith in your faith, then when hard times come or things come along that you don't understand, which is, I don't know about you, for me it's like 80% of the time. I don't know what's going on. And I'm often in my prayers asking God, what is going on? And He tells me, trust you. Trust me. Or, trust me. Trust me. Take the next step. You're on the path. Step. Take a step. Go. Keep going. Do you trust me? Is your life mine? Or is your life yours? And I have to answer like many of you. I mean, you have to answer really at the end of the day. My life is His. 
I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I'm to glorify God, according to the Apostle Paul, in my body. I have to take the next step. So we looked at this conviction of faith. And today we're going to look at this final element. And then next week, I've already written part of a sermon I hope will help. I'm going to try to tie the whole thing together and show you. So don't miss next week. You will see the whole, if you've missed any of the other six or seven that we've done, you'll be able to capture, that, capture it all uh, next week. Uh, as I tie it all together. Today we're going to look at this final element. He was received up into glory. And what that means is, received up into glory is this, that the cross always precedes the crown. The cross precedes the crown. The path that you're on is not going to be easy. Now, I'm taking a chance here. I hope you all will appreciate it. You can go to any number of churches in El Paso today or get on TV and watch TV and and you'll hear messages where everything is great. All you have to do is believe and God will do anything you say or want. And everything's going to be fine. And then you come to Christ the King and you've got this guy up here going, no, sorry. The good news is not good news, folks, unless you take a hard look at the bad news, right? Unless you look the demon in the face and kiss him on the lips, you will never find Jesus. You'll never find him until you see the the blackness of this earth and the darkness of our own hearts and the need for a Savior. You'll never get it. The good news is not good news until you take a good hard look at the bad. Don't look too long. Marie McShane said, for every look you take at your sin, take ten looks at what? Class. Remember? What? What? You take a look at Jesus. Every every look you take at your sin, take ten at Jesus. You have to do that just to stay in balance. It's ten to one. So what about this cross before the crown? We're going to look at it this way. Here's your outline for this morning. Hope it will help you. Why did He descend? Why descend? You see, being received into glory, ascending back to somewhere, implies that He had to descend, yes? He had to come down in order to go back up. That's the whole premise here. He came down, now He's going back up. Why descend? Second question, second part of your outline. Why ascend? Why descend? Why ascend? And the last part, why Jesus? Why Him? Why descend? Why ascend? And why Jesus? So let's look. Why descend? If you look at this first part of the creed, the creed is laid out, by the way, it's very, very interesting how the author Paul organized this creed. He just didn't do it willy-nilly. He did it structurally. Look, first line of the creed, He was manifest in the flesh. Last line of the creed, taken up into glory. Flesh, glory. Second line, vindicated by the Spirit. Second from the last line, believed on in the world. You've got Spirit and world. Do you see how Paul is organizing them? Third line, seen by angels, angels are heavenly beings, proclaimed on among the nations, people on the earth. Paul very self-consciously organized this creed into a way that you could put the pieces together and see the logic of this confession and this creed. 
Why descend? Why was He manifest in the flesh? And the Westminster Confession of Faith is very helpful here. Uh, question 27. Wherein... Now, some of you are not familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Shorter and Larger Catechism. This is the Shorter Catechism, question 27. These are the standards by which our church is kind of organized. are the Scriptures overall, but underneath we have adopted the Westminster Standards as our standards for our church, our denomination. And they're, they're pretty good. Wherein consists Christ's humiliation? His humiliation. Christ's humiliation is, consists in His being born. And that in a low condition. Made under the law. Undergoing the miseries of this life. The wrath of God and the cursed death on the cross. In being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Christ's humiliation consisted in His being born. The story of the Bible, folks, is the story of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit creating a world that was without sin and perfect. And mankind using His freedom, abusing His freedom to corrupt this world that God made for them. They corrupted paradise. Imagine the insanity. In fact, Dr. R.C. Sproul says that is going to be the mystery question of the ages that we are going to ask and maybe never get an answer for. Why? Why did our original parents living in paradise, having everything they could possibly want or need, and intimate fellowship with God unbroken, choose to betray Him? Why? And it may take us eternity to plumb the depths of that great question. Wherein did it consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in His being born. Listen, folks. The amazing thing about the Gospel is that God chose, this was His choice, to come and save humanity, to come and rescue humanity, not in power and strength of an army, not in the power and strength of supernatural miracles, but in the humility, the humiliation of a birth. And those of you ladies carrying babies and those of you that have carried children and you see that little baby born and you see the child can do nothing for himself, he's completely he, she or whatever, is completely without any ability. Weakness. And God is saying to you and I, I come in weakness. Why? Why descend? He descends so that He can go to the very bottom. To the lowest place that you and I can imagine. In fact, He goes to the lowest place that you and I can imagine because that's where He finds you and I. He goes all the way down. He doesn't go and hover up there in the heavens and say, come up, come up. He goes down to the bottom. He gets underneath, 
If you can imagine, He goes beneath our, our sin, our depravity, our want. All of the things that you can imagine, the things that are hidden, the things that keep you up at night. Thinking about yourself, how could He possibly love me? When I know all of these things about myself, how could He possibly love you? Well, let me tell you, He knows more than that. And He still goes deeper, lower, darker, all the way. And gets underneath and begins to lift you up. He descended so that there's nobody and nothing and nowhere that we can say, this is out of His purview. He can't, he can't go there. And some of it is terrible sin. Some of it is things that, like I've told you, where He found me, He found me in the gutter. I know that you don't believe me, but that's where He found me. And He found some of you in the gutter, not of sin, but of self-righteousness. He might have found you in the gutter of church. Where you think, I've gone to church all my life. I'm a good person. Look at how good I am. Everybody's got to look at me and say, I'm better than that person. And I know I haven't done everything this person has done. That's a gutter. And if you don't believe it's a gutter, read the Gospels. Because Jesus went after those self-righteous and self-justifying people. He never condemned an adulteress. He never condemned a harlot. He never condemned a tax collector. He never condemned a cheat. He condemned the religious and the self-righteous. They, if the truth be known, were at the lowest part of the gutter in their self-confidence and self-righteousness. Why? Because they would say to Almighty God, imagine the craziness in this, folks. You say to God, I don't really need you. In fact, you need me. I am so good. You need me. I validate you. I thank You, O oh God, that I am not like this other man over here. Do you see the gutter that person is in? In fact, Jesus said it's harder for that person, He called them rich, harder for them to go through the eye of a needle than a camel. Very difficult. That's a gutter just as much as sin and addiction and depravity that you can imagine. It's a gutter. Why did He descend? He descended so that He could save everyone that He chooses to save. The least, the last, and the lost. And so His, his descent is a message to you and to me that you cannot say to Him ever, ever, I've gone too far. I've taken a step too far. I've sinned once too many times. I've done this thing too often. I've taken advantage of your grace too much. He will always tell you, I've gone lower than that. I've already been below that. Now, let's see. What else can you do? Now, Paul warns us, should we sin that grace may abound? What did he say? No, never. Of course not. You'd never want to presume on God's grace. But what he is saying is the good news is the bad news is not bad enough to overcome the good news. Hallelujah. I know we're Presbyterians. It's hard to get Presbyterians to get excited. We are going to serve wine later. Would that excite anybody? Yeah, all right. Wine's coming. No, come on folks, that's got to excite you. Think about that. I go to the bottom because I want the bottom. 
I want to take the people on the bottom and bring them up. So I will go. I will go where no one has ever gone before. And I'll do it willingly because I love you. So He takes on our humanity. The the shorter catechism, beautiful. He takes on humiliation so that humility becomes not a weakness, but what? Our strength. That means that we can reach out to anybody around us, any person. doesn't matter. There's nobody outside of His grace. No one outside of His grasp. Because when you look in the mirror in the morning, you're fixing yourself up for church. You want to look really nice so that you can fake everybody out. So you're fixing yourself up really nice. You still have to look at yourself. And I don't know about you folks, but when I look in the mirror, I'm amazed how He could possibly love me. In fact, sometimes I don't even believe He does. I want Him to. I want to believe the Gospel, but I struggle believing that He does love me because I know myself, and that's the struggle we all have. Does He really love me? And when it says He descended into this earth for you and for me, it is saying, I do love you and I will go to the bottom for you. In your humanity, I won't send an army. I won't send a messenger. I won't send somebody else. I will come myself. And I won't stand up on the balcony with, uh, like Queen Elizabeth when she was holding Prince Charles as a baby. Some of you have seen the news clips. She's holding him and showing the great king. This is the heir to the kingdom. And she's on the balcony of the palace of Buckingham. And it's all oh, great and glorious. Look up here at your Savior. And the Gospel, glory be to God, the Gospel tells us, look, look poor sinner, look wretched sinner, look down here and find your God. There you find Him on the cross, in the grave, for you, as you, in your flesh, clothing Himself, as the hymn says, in frail humanity, so that He can save us, not from up there, but from here. To the uttermost, He descended. The Bible says Jesus was a man acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows. He knows what your pain is. He knows how low our lives can get. He knows what depression is. He knows what bipolar is. He knows what it is to feel broken to the extent that you think there's no way these pieces can be put back together. And I'm here to tell you, that's right. There is no way to put those pieces back together apart from someone who has been so broken and has the power to put those pieces back together that He can do it for you. And that is the promise of His descent. No matter where you've been or where He found you, you haven't been in the dark like He was in the dark. You've never been forsaken. You might think you have, but you have never been forsaken like He was forsaken. You've never been lost impoverished, emptied out to where you're hollow inside, nothing left. No one has. He descended. He descended. So what does it mean 
He ascended. This is great news. He was taken up, it says, into glory. The Apostle Paul finishes this particular creed with this statement. He was taken up into glory. He was exalted. And again, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the next question, 28. Wherein consists Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consists in His rising again from the dead on the third day and ascending up into heaven and sitting on the right hand of God the Father and coming again to judge the world at the last day. Now we can't talk about all of what this means. It would be great to be able to do that. But what he's saying is that the resurrection being raised from the dead, vindicates what Jesus did on the cross. In other words, it vindicates His life. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval. He's stamping and saying, you know, everything my son did, I approve. Jesus is the one that God is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that good, well done, good and faithful servant is going to spill over into all of us that are trusting Him. You see, I can never stand before God and Him say to me, Chuck, well done, good and faithful servant, apart from my relationship to Jesus. I can't. And I'm telling you, don't try that. When you go to Him, He will say, well done, good and faithful servant, to you because you belong to Him. We can never divorce. I told you this a few weeks ago. We can never divorce our personhood, our works, our, our lives. We can't divorce them from His life at any point along the way. We never want to stand before God, before the bar, before the judgment seat, never without our advocate standing there with us. Pleading our case. Interceding for us. And so, to say that He has ascended into heaven, he is, He's saying to you and I, yes, I went to the bottom to get you at the bottom. And I went below your bottom. But I'm not going to leave you there. We're going to ascend, and we're not going to ascend just up to somewhere, and you're going to be over here, and you know, this is nice, I'm going to keep all my people over here in this little compound, and you know, they're nice, I kind of like them, sort of like pets. No. We're going to ascend up into glory. His glory. With Him. To our true home. You know, <laughs> I'm uh, 61 years old. I'm not ashamed to say that because that's what I am. 61. And all my life, I only remember one place, one single place that I felt utterly and completely safe every moment I was there. And some of you probably have a place like that. Maybe you don't. I have one. I can't... There's no other place like that place. And it was my grandmother's house. Just over here. You could throw a rock and hit her house. Every day of my life, 
that was the safe place. It was the center of my universe. And my brother David says that the center of the center of that universe was her kitchen. Which is true. Because you really felt safe there because you knew you'd never starve. There was food everywhere. Where is that safe place for you? That place where you can think and say, you know, I, I was safe there. I was okay there. Nothing could touch me there. And that's what Jesus is saying to you and I. I descended so that we could ascend, not so I can put you over there in my zoo, in my house, you're my servants, I'm going to keep you over in the servants' quarters. No, I'm going to take you into my home. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me in my Father's house. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you so that when you arrive, you are welcome. You're welcome there. You know, you could have a guest come to the city and you could say, where would you like to stay? We'll put you up in the Ritz-Carlton downtown or we'll put you over here, we'll put you over there. But there's something special when you tell somebody, you know, if you're willing, I'd like you to stay in my home. Eat my food. Sit at my table. Be my personal guest. Feast on my food. The finest of fair bread from heaven and wine that is blood my life for you now when someone invites you into their home they're telling you come up to where i am and let me serve you where i live i don't want you to be my guest in another part of town in another building i don't want you to be my servant i want you to be mine my son my daughter, my family, I want to adopt you. I don't want to use you. I don't want you to be my tool. I don't want you to be, you know, I, people say I want to be used by the Lord. I know what we mean, but it's too utilitarian. No, I want to love you. I want you to be mine in my house. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said. And if I go to prepare a place for you, listen, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and get you and take you to where I am. I will descend and rescue you. And then I will descend and I will take you to where I am so that we can live together. Not like the angels hovering around on the outside kind of looking down on what's going on. But no. The Apostle Paul went so far as to make this astounding statement. We will be seated with Him where? In the heavenly places. Do you realize what he's saying? You're not going to be watching from out there. You're going to be seated with Him. Where? At the Father's right hand. How? I don't know. I don't know how He's going to fit all of us on His lap. But I'm fighting you for a place. I don't know how he's going to do it. But he's saying, he's saying, I'll be seated at the Father's right hand and so will you. Not over there watching as an observer, but here, watch from the seat 
of all the power and authority, I descended so that you could ascend with me and share in my glory. So why Jesus? Well, I'll tell you very quickly, we need to end. Why Jesus? I'll tell you why. Because no one ever that has been born had the power, what the Apostle Paul calls the power of an indestructible life. Jesus Christ was unique. He was unique. He was fully human. I don't understand that either. 100% human. 100% divine. Not 50-50. They weren't mixed or corrupted as the, as the Chalcedonian formula. And if you get a chance, go on Google and look up the formula of Chalcedon and read it. Brilliant. Never been anything written like it. I don't know if we'll ever write anything like it again. No mixture, no confusion of His nature. No, He was 100%. I don't know how it works out mathematically. It doesn't really work. 100% divine. 100% human. But still just like us. How? How does God do that? I don't know how He does it. But why Jesus? Because He had, God gave Him, before He sent Him to this earth, He said, you have the power of life and death. I'm giving it to you. And so Jesus walked through this earth as a unique human being who had the power of life and death. Think about that, folks. If I had the power of life and death, I would not have, have let Ugo's dad suffer the way he did. Right? I wouldn't have let Alexa die. I never would have let my grandparents die. I'd have kept them forever. Yes. But if I had done it, they would have missed glory. The glory of the only begotten Son. You see, He has the power of life and death. I could only do what I can do as a person like me, which is not that great. He is utterly unique and has the power to go down to the bottom, go to the top, and then take what God gave him and make it something so glorious that the Apostle Paul said, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them that love Him. Why Jesus? He prayed, Father, I pray that they might know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ your Son. I pray that You will take them to where I am. I pray that they will be able to see My glory, the glory I had with You before the foundation of the earth. I want to take them all the way, not ascending just into heaven, but into His throne itself. Not just His throne, but His person Himself. So that You and I can experience life we could never have given any of our beloved on this earth. And that's the hope that each and every one of us had. have. He doesn't send an army. He doesn't send an angel. He doesn't send a servant. He comes Himself. The Gospel, folks, the message of the Bible from front to back is simply this. God says, me for you. Me for you. 
Every world religion, every world religion, all of them lump together, say, you for me, you serve me, you do for me, you owe me. And Christianity, crazy, comes into the world and says this, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, me, for you. Will you trust Him? It's your only hope of glory. It's the only thing that will fill you to the top. It's the only thing that will make sense of losing your dad. Of losing your daughter. Of losing your health or your life. It's the only thing that will take you from here all the way to there and beyond. Will you trust Him? I pray you'll do it. Let's pray. Father, it's so hard for us to live in this world where we're surrounded with so much pain and grief and sorrow. And yet, hear an audacious promise that if we will trust You, Jesus will go to the bottom and rescue us and take us to the top to places we cannot imagine that He Himself will make sense of all our pain. And that someday we will look back and be amazed, wonder, and wonder how could we possibly have ever doubted You. Father, give us the strength to persevere through these many doubts and these many fears. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.